Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Images of Christ. This series looks at the images of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and how they represent four aspects of Jesus Christ, the true human, king, servant, and God. We're going to be uh, continuing our teaching series uh, on these four symbols of Christ that again come out of Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the symbol of the lion, the true king, the lion, the true king. And our text is going to be Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You can follow along up on the screens. It's also in the little booklet. Or you can follow along on your Bible. So Isaiah chapter 9. Hear now the word of our sovereign Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. As we look at all of these symbols, probably the one that that is the easiest for most people to grasp is the symbol of the lion. People are used to thinking of the lion as being the king of the beast, whether you think of the movie The Lion King, or you think, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, The Chronicles of Narnia, of course, the Christ figure there is the lion known as Aslan. And we think of this because we think of lions as being regal and powerful. And so when we come to this symbol, uh, what is it that it teaches us about who Jesus is? When we think of uh, a lion as representing Christ down through history, what is it trying to represent to us? But there's a second question I want us to consider this morning, which is these symbols are four different symbols, but they're about one Jesus, one Christ. So what's the relationship between the lion, the king, and the man that we looked at last week? If Jesus is, as the man, the second Adam, who's fulfilled our responsibilities before God, and who through his act of obedience to the law of God gives us righteousness, What is the relationship between that and him being the lion? So let's dive into the scripture. Now, when we consider the lion as the true king and we look at our text today, Isaiah is prophesying about one who is going to come, one who is the son of David that is going to come and he's going to be king. And if you notice in this text, which we very often read around Christmas time, It speaks very much about the Messiah who's going to be king, and it uses a lot of words for ruling. Notice there in our text, and these are all highlighted up here, but uh, government, prince, in verse 7, government again, reigning on David's throne. It speaks of reigning over his kingdom, and it talks about the responsibility of the king to establish justice and righteousness. All of these words that are highlighted there speak of the one who's going to come as fulfilling the role of being a king. And this king is actually going to sit on David's throne. And I won't take time this morning, but 
for, for those who are in our congregation, we just finished that long study of David's reign, and we're told, in fact, that David's throne is the throne of the Lord. It's the throne of Yahweh. So when we say that this Messiah, this coming one, is going to sit on David's throne, it's actually that he's sitting on the throne of the Lord. And so his job, like the job of every king in David's line, is to establish justice and to establish righteousness. Now this is important because the reason the messianic hope is being built up and why Isaiah is having this prophecy is because, of course, this age, the age in which they live and in which we live, is full of brokenness, it's full of injustice and unrighteousness, but this king who Isaiah is prophesying about is going to come and he's going to repair, he's going to restore, and he's going to uphold righteousness. Now, that's pretty obvious when you just look at this text in Isaiah, but you might ask the question, what does that have to do with a lion? And the answer is that this one who's doing this is fulfilling earlier prophecies as well. And the king was known, the coming king was known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of God's redemptive work in Israel. As Jacob was dying, in Genesis chapter 49, he's speaking a prophecy. He's prophesying over each of his sons, the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And when he comes to Judah, here is his prophecy. This is in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. He says, You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. So notice three times in the first sentence about Judah, Judah is likened to a lion. And then notice what he does in verse 10. He says, the scepter, which is the, the sign of rule, the sign of being the leader, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Do you hear how Isaiah is picking up on all of this this idea here that the one who's coming comes out of Judah. He comes out of David's line, in fact, within Judah. And he's going to be the ruler, but he's not only the ruler over God's people. Notice his scepter and his rule is over all the nations. The obedience of the nations is his. And so there's this idea that the lion of the tribe of Judah, as he came to be named, was the Messiah who was going to come. He was going to rule over God's people, and he was actually going to rule over all the nations of the earth. And this is not only in the Old Testament. When we come all the way down to the book of Revelation, in fact, we were singing that song this morning that is usually called the Revelation song, and it was taken out of Revelation chapter 5, and here's what we read in Revelation 5. It says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. He, he's crying because there are these seals that can't be opened. And John's weeping. And so an elder says, to him, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so Jesus is here referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also referred to as the root of David because it's merging together these Old Testament symbols. It's joining the two titles of the ruling Messiah, that this one who is to come is 
not only from David's line, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The, the lion, the king of the beast, is the symbol of the ruler over God's kingdom. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, he's ruling over everything that's happening here on this earth. So biblically, the idea is the Messiah, the one who's going to come, come to us to save, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king and the ruler over God's kingdom. Now, we're going to do the same thing each week. We have to step back and say, well, why? Why does he have to be king? Last week we saw that he had to come and he had to be the second Adam, and he had to obey in our place and suffer and die in our place, but why does he have to be the king? Well, if we look at this biblically, I'm going to start with kind of throwing up our catechism question as I'm doing each week during this series. And Jesus actually fulfilled three major roles out of the Old Testament. And those roles are the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And notice as prophet, Jesus speaks the word of God to us. That's what prophets did. As priest, he sacrifices himself for our sins and intercedes for us before God's throne. We actually looked at that some last week. And as king, he rules over us and all of creation to accomplish the will of God. He's here to do what God has done. And so Jesus has fulfilled these roles of prophet, priest, and king. And so when we say the Messiah is the king, he's fulfilling all the Old Testament motifs of being king, and he's going to rule God's people as the, uh, as the Davidic kings did, but he's also going to rule over the whole universe to accomplish the will of God. Now, lest you think, we just created this idea out of nowhere. This is what the Scripture teaches. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews is going to go through all this stuff about who Jesus is. Right at the beginning, it tells us this in the first three verses. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. So notice he's got prophets. Many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. See, there were a lot of prophets, but Jesus is the prophet. Um, and then he tells us later, after he had provided purification for sins, there had been many priests, but Jesus is the priest. But what he does after he's done that is he sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven because there had been many kings, but there is one king. And Jesus is that king. So he is prophet who speaks the word of God to us, priest who sacrifices himself and intercedes for us, and king who rules and reigns over us. Jesus fulfills all of these roles in his coming. And in particular today, we're going to focus on the one, the lion, the king. What does that mean that he's doing this? Well, obviously we can say, well, he was God. And so, in a sense, Jesus was a ruler from all of eternity. But what we're talking about is, what did it mean in his incarnation? In those verses that, that Eloise was quoting this morning in the candle lighting, in the verses that, that Tony kind of went with, what does it mean that Jesus came to be king? Well, if we think for a second, and this is where we tie it back to humanity, what was the first command that God gave to humanity? Well, actually the second. The first command was be fruitful and multiply. But the second command, if you notice in Genesis 1.28, God creates Adam and Eve, and he says this, God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. 
God creates human beings and says, you are in my image, and I'm the king. And therefore, since you are my image bearers, you are supposed to rule creation in my stead. You are supposed to be my vice regents, as it were. You are going to rule over all creation in my place. And it is an essential part of what it means to be the image of God. We cannot be the image of God apart from fulfilling our call and our role to rule over creation in the stead of God. And that's our call there in Genesis 1, and that sounds great, right? But there's a problem. The problem comes in Genesis chapter 3. Initially, the earth responds to our leadership. Creation willingly follows us. But in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam has sinned and fallen and God speaks to Adam. Notice what he tells him in Genesis 3, 17 and 19. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You're going to eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are. And the dust you're going to return. So notice what's going on here. Rather than there being a harmonious relationship, rather than us leading creation to the glory of God, creation's fighting us. And it says, you're going to labor by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work, and creation's not willingly going to give you food like it did before. In fact, what it's going to be really good at producing is thorns and thistles. How many of you in here have ever tried to grow something? What is, whether it's a flower bed or a garden, what does it grow best? Right, whatever you don't want, right? Now, we may be first, because I always think about our lawns. I don't know why it is that everything that wants to grow in my yard, I'm supposed to try and kill. And what I'm supposed to be trying to get to grow never wants to grow. But that is part of the curse. It's part of what's going on. God says there's going to be this warfare between you now. And at the end of it all, Adam... It's like the ground's going to reach up and grab you and drag you right back down into the dust. Because you're my image, but you're also taken out of the dust. You rebelled. There's a curse. It's now going to be problematic for you to be the king over the earth. Now, we might wonder, you know, what effect this is going to have, and are we still going to be the kings? And see, because of this, we struggle. And this is actually why we humans alternate between fearing and trying to dominate creation. We, we, have an, we have an unnatural relationship. And for the last few hundred years in Western civilization, we've taken it as, well, we're going to try and be the kings, but what it leads to is not cultivating it, not bringing it out to the glory of God, but we're going to dominate it. It's raw material for us to exploit in the worst sense of that term. And that's because there's something in us that realizes we're not in a harmonious relationship anymore. So the question is, does God just say, well, now that you're in this, you're no longer kings? And the answer is no. We're still responsible to rule creation for the glory of God. It's just we've brought a problem into it. In Psalm 8, we see this. This is obviously years and years and years later. It's one of the Psalms, the, the book most associated with David. And notice what we read in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. The psalmist is writing, and he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have created, what's man 
that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but you crowned him with glory and honor. So notice the psalmist is saying, I'm looking at creation, and it's so massive and so amazing. And even when I consider heavenly beings, angels, they seem to be so powerful. Who are we? Why would you pay any attention to us? But notice he goes on in verse 6, and he says, You made him, speaking of humanity, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. Where, where is he getting this list of animals from? Genesis chapter 1. What the psalmist is saying is, I look out at creation, it seems so big, it seems so overwhelming, things seem to be a struggle, but what I realize is, I still have the same call you gave us all the way back in the garden. What you told us we were supposed to do, we're still supposed to be doing. That call in Genesis 1 is still there for us. So even after the fall, humans are called to rule over creation to the glory of God. Now, the problem is, do we see that all working out for us? It doesn't. We've got, again, this struggle going between us, and this is where Jesus comes in just like he did. Adam had a call that he didn't fulfill. Jesus came in and fulfilled it as far as obeying God and bringing righteousness. Well, Adam also had a call to rule over the creation, which he didn't fulfill, and Jesus comes to fulfill that as well. In the book of Hebrews, it quotes from Psalm 8. It says, but there's a place where someone has testified. What's man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And notice here in these first verses in Hebrews 2, 6, uh, 7, in the beginning of 8, he's quoting from Psalm 8. He's saying, you said this was supposed to happen. You put everything under his feet. And in putting everything under him, God left nothing that's not subject to him. Now notice what he says there at the end of verse 8. It says, yet, at present, we don't see everything subject to him. He says, I'm reading in the Psalms, and it says we're supposed to be ruling over creation, but I can look around, and creation looks a lot more like Genesis chapter 3 than it does Psalm 8 and Psalm 1. It looks to be a mess, so what does that mean? And then in verse 9, he gives the answer, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered but death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he's saying, look, I'm quoting humans, humans have failed. I'm quoting Psalm 8, showing humans have failed. Because of the curse, we're not fulfilling our role. I mean, we don't see this coming to fruition, but here's what we do see. We see Jesus, and he's come, and he did what the psalm was talking about. He did what Adam was supposed to do there in the garden and yet did not do. Jesus, the second Adam, has come and he's ruling over all of creation to the glory of God. That's what the writer in Hebrews is saying. What was the call in Genesis 1? What was reiterated in Psalm chapter 8? Jesus is actually doing. So the lion is linked to the man because as the lion, the king is ruling as humanity was called to do. The second Adam is fulfilling the role that the first Adam was giving. And friends, he excels. Just like he did in Adam's call to obey and to bring righteousness, he excels in ruling over creation and fulfilling that part of Adam's call as well. He is God's ruling king. 
And that includes not only this age, but the age to come. If you notice in Hebrews 2.5, which was what led into the passage we just looked at, he says, it's not to angels he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. God did not call angels to rule over creation. He called humans to rule over creation. And so Jesus, the God-man, the one who has come as a human being, rules not only over this creation, but even the world that is to come. He has entered into the new age, the new creation, and he's begun his rule over both this creation and the one to come. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. And here he's talking about the resurrection. And this is why it's important, by the way, that Jesus was raised bodily. Not just in our heart, but he's raised as a full human being. Paul says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Notice here, Jesus, who came as a human, lives in obedience, dies in our place, conquers death, is raised and exalted and seated at the right hand of God, and he is ruling and reigning everything for the glory of God. But also notice, he's exalted over everything in this age, Paul says, and in the age to come. It doesn't matter which creation you're talking about, old or new, fallen or recreated. It does not matter what power you are talking about. Jesus is ruling and reigning over it, and he's doing it for God's glory and, and for the good of his people. Jesus is exerting that rule, and he's doing it right now. Jesus, the lion, the king, is ruling over everything for God's glory and for the good of God's people. Now, what does this mean to us? There's one thing that's going to be a little bit theological, and then we're going to get really, really practical and what this means for you and me. First thing that's a little theological, do we see that Jesus had to be king overall? Just like we saw last week, it's not a random thing. Jesus has to be king because, this is Jesus who's become man, has to be king. Because you and I were called to rule over God's creation. And so Jesus, not only as God, but as man, rules and reigns over all things for the glory of God. And this is critical because we need to see God's plan in creation is on track okay this is why see the gnostics some of them wanted to say well he only looked like he was human if he only looked like he's human then what we're saying is god lost and god's plans got thwarted by our sin let me tell you that's bad theology god's plans are right on track and when God said, I've made humans in my image, and they are going to rule over the creation to my glory, that plan is still going to be done. And it's being done 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. So do I understand God's plan for creation for the universe is on track? There are a lot of people out there, and if you watch the news, it's very tempting. I mean, just look at the news. Is it easy to say, I'm not sure that this whole thing is going the way that God wants? I mean, if you look at it, it can really look to be a mess out there, doesn't it? I mean, it's easy to get duped into saying, I'm not sure God really is on the throne anymore. There's a whole theology that's out there that's called process theology. Don't, don't remember that and don't read it. That says, poor God, he's in the life raft with us floating down the Colorado River and he's trying to run class six rapids and he's as nervous about where we're going as we are. If that's your God, put your arm around him and kiss him and put him to bed at night. But that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is not in this with us trying to figure out what's going on. He rules and reigns over all things. And what he designed as was going to happen is exactly what is going to happen. God's plan for creation is still on track. Do I understand that? Do I believe it? Because if you don't believe it in the big picture, you're not going to believe it in the little picture, which we're going to come to in just a second. If he can't rule over all things, he can't rule over the stuff in my life either. So do I understand that? And do I see that God's purposes in redemption are the same as his purposes in creation? Again, that old group, the Gnostics, but they always rear their ugly head. Say, well, you know, the whole creation was kind of a mess. But Jesus came to redeem and get us out of that. It's kind of like the old Plato thing, you know, that what I need to do is get out of my body. I need to get out of this creation because what God's doing in redemption is different than in creation. No, it's not. It's the same purposes. They are linked together always in Scripture. What God designed is what God came to redeem. And they are always working together. Do I understand that? Because if you do, then you know all of your life is important before God. And if you don't, I've got my little spiritual stuff that matters. And the rest of it doesn't really matter because that's all kind of the creation thing and it's fallen, it's a mess, and we're just waiting to get out of here and get to heaven. God doesn't have two sets of purposes. They're the same. Creation and redemption are together. This is the hope of glory, friends. God has not set it aside. Every square inch of creation Jesus stands on the throne and says, that's mine. I rule and reign it all. I have come, and I'm going to work redemption and reconciliation over all things. That was my Father's plan. That is what I have accomplished, and I'm going to do that as the lion, and I'm going to do that as the man. I'm going to rule and reign as God designed. Now, that's theological. Now, let me start meddling a little bit. Do I see Jesus is really, really king over everything? Do I see that he is sovereign over every square inch of all creation, including the square inches that I occupy? Now, that question number one can ask, do I, am I submitted to him as the king? But there's another point it asks, and I want to really drive to. Do I believe in my life in my family, in my work, in my body, my circumstances, that Jesus is ruling over my life for God's glory 
and for my good. And let me, let me replace the one word there because they're actually the same throughout the Bible, not just believe, because we're not talking about just mental. Do I trust that Jesus is ruling over my circumstances for God's glory and for my good? And see, this is essential, friends, because if we don't, life has a way of disappointing you and me. Doesn't it? And when it does, is when I find out if I'm really trusting that Jesus is ruling over all things for God's glory and my good. Because if I don't, when life doesn't work the way I wanted it to work and I carefully planned and maneuvered and worked and prayed and labored and did all of that, then suddenly, you know what, Jesus, I don't need this. Not the way I want. This is not what I signed up for. But actually, it's exactly what we signed up for. We signed up that he rules and reigns over all things in my life. And life is full of disappointments. Life is full of struggles. So let me get it really concrete for us. Are there any circumstances at present that shake my faith in Jesus' lordship over all? could really meddle by saying what circumstances at present are doing that. Because at least in my experience of almost 41 years of walking with Jesus, there's always some area where I'm finding it really hard to trust. What about, let me give a few questions here. I, I wrote these down when I was meditating about this down in Georgia a month ago. These are just a few areas. How about finances and work? finances and work, that I look, and whether it is my financial situation or it's my, my job, my business situation, am I finding it difficult to believe that God is actually in charge of that, that he is watching over it? Or do I live as a practical atheist in that area? Well, I doctrinally acknowledge he's ruling and reigning the entire universe, but this little area right here seems to be kind of chaotic and out of his control. And I don't make light of that because, trust me, there have been times that in those areas I was finding it very hard to trust him. How about an area of health? Physical health for my body or the body of someone I care for. I can give a personal example. The day a few few summers ago when Linda and I were getting ready to go out on a date and a doctor called and said uh, I need to talk to Linda and Linda got this look in her face because this doctor never called back with test results and then that doctor said I could be wrong but when we did the brain scan last week you might have CNS vasculitis which sounds weird but it wasn't too scary until I looked it up and then I looked it up and I started saying this says if you have that, like you could fall over in a second, go into a coma, and never wake up. This says you could die. This says this is like really dangerous. And so I can tell you, I went from Jesus is ruling over all things for God's glory and my good to sitting in the chair a couple hours later and Linda saying, how are you doing? And me trying not to do what I'm about to do right now, which is break down into tears. And then calling each of our children and trying not to cry and trying to say, I'm trusting God. 
And I spent a few weeks walking in my office having to say, like, breathe. Because it was scary. It's not easy. But friends, Jesus rules and reigns over all things, or he doesn't. And the challenge comes in. It's easy when my body's healthy. It's hard when my body is betraying me. But do I trust he's ruling over that? What about relationship issues? Do I trust that even when they seem to be a mess, Jesus is still going to work all things for my good? See, that's an amazing thing in Romans 8, 28. It doesn't say everything is good. Can people do evil to me? Yeah, they can. It doesn't say everything is good, but it says no matter what happens, God will work it to my good. God is always at work for good. And when Paul says that in Romans 8, 28, he's alluding back to Joseph who said that. Man, how hard is it if you're Joseph and your brothers threw you in a well sold you off to slavery, you're falsely accused of trying to rape someone that you did nothing wrong, and you're thrown in jail, and this all goes on for decades. And then Joseph says, you all meant it for evil, but God was working good. God had a plan and was working it for good. I love reading that as long as I'm not down in the dungeon. When I'm in the dungeon, not the kind of story I want to read. It's hard. Do we trust God in the middle of those relationship issues that God is going to work? He is sovereignly at work. We don't always understand it. Because, friend, here's the clue. I mean, I've been 41 years walking with Jesus. I read the Greek. I read the None of that helps discerning exactly what's going on around you. There are times it just doesn't make any sense what's going on around you. But do I trust that Jesus has come And he is always at work for God's glory and my good. Last area, and I'll stop meddling. What about just world events? Now I'm going to tell some of y'all from your social media posts, spend entirely too much time reading crazy news feeds about everything going on out there. You need to block some of that stuff. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's ruling and reigning whether the person you like got elected or not, whether the political stuff's going the way you like it or not. He's ruling. Nobody can stop that. And that means that come what may, he's going to watch over us as his people. And that is true when things are going our way, and that is true If you were a German Christian in 1933 and Adolf Hitler just seized power, he's still ruling, he's still reigning, he's still going to work for God's glory, and he's going to work for the good of his people. We might have tough times, but he's going to do those things. So I again ask, are there any, or you can say which, circumstances are shaking my faith in Jesus' lordship overall. I want us to think about that because we're going to come to the table in a moment. And get real with God. Don't, don't play silly games because it's easy. 
Okay, I know enough Bible, I can always justify. Well, that's not worry. That's Proverbs wisdom. Okay, I, I know how to play the games. I know how to bring the Bible verses out. But you know in your heart if God is speaking to you right now and saying, this is the spot. This is the square foot you somehow think I don't rule over. This is where you feel like I've fallen asleep. You read the Psalms and you know what the psalmist goes through, right? Oh God, you're good to Israel. You seem to have forgotten me. That's why I love the Psalms, because I'm like, oh yeah, I feel that. I'm right there. But in that moment, we got to keep wrestling with God and we got to keep trusting and we got to ask God to reveal his rulership to us. So we're going to come to the table. And as we do, we're coming to the table of the king. And I want you to think of two things. Number one, what a miracle it is you're invited into this table. The king who rules over the universe invites you to his table. How many of you can go knock on the governor's door today and say, hey, Larry, I'd like to sit down and eat lunch with you? Or if we do that at the White House, what would happen? We'll be on the news. God will be ruling your circumstances in jail. Right? But the king of all the universe says, I've spread a table out. Come, sit, eat, and drink with me. That should be a marvel to us. But secondly, as you do this, when the king invites you to his table, it's his pledge that I care for you and I love you and I want you to trust me that whatever's going on, I'm watching out. I'm ruling. I'm doing it for the glory of the Father and I'm doing it for your good ultimately. And let's do that business with him. And as always, if you've got sin, confess it. But the primary sin to be thinking about is, Lord, where am I not trusting? Where do I believe that you let your body be broken and crushed? You let your blood be spilled? But I think this area is outside your concern. I don't think you're paying attention to this. When, you, when the Lord reveals that area to you, I want us to confess that and ask God to build up that trust in our hearts that he is king. Friends, as we come to this table, I want to remind you that uh, you, everyone who is a believer is welcome here. You do not have to be a member of our church. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, which means you understand that only he's our hope of salvation. He is God in flesh. He has lived and died for us, worked redemption for us. If you believe that, and you believe you're saved by faith alone, then please join us. As always, there's going to be a gluten-free uh, option. If, if you need gluten-free bread for health reasons, please raise your hand in a moment, and we will get it to you. So friends, please hear the invitation of your king and join him at his table. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. 
And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the miracle that you invite us to your table. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each heart in this room. And wherever we are struggling with trust, that you would reveal that to us, and then you would draw us in and empower us by your sacrament to give that to you and to walk in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. Consider that and pray about it, and then we will take the sacrament together in just a couple of moments. Holy Father, you are our creator and king. In your overflowing goodness, you made us in your image to rule creation as your vice regents. As those appointed rulers by you, we were to guard and cultivate your creation, protecting and developing its potential. But instead of protecting creation, we unleash death and destruction by our sin. Instead of developing, we have exploited it. We have treated it as mere raw material for our own desires rather than a gift from your hand to be nurtured for your glory and our good. So today, with gratitude, we confess that where we have failed your call, Jesus has fulfilled it for us. He is the great King. He rules over all creation for your glory and our good. Though he was king from all eternity, he humbled himself, taking our nature, succeeding where we failed. And though we broke his body and we put him to death, you overruled our wickedness and you raised him from the dead. And in his full human body and nature, he is now seated at your right hand, far above all rule and power and authority in the universe, thus fulfilling your call for humanity. So we confess that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead, to restore creation, making it into a new heavens and a new earth, which will be the home of righteousness. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you came to fulfill the Father's will, obeying the law of God and suffering for our disobedience. You are the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And Jesus, though we often fail, we confess today we can trust you. Because you love us, and you have freed us from our sins by your blood, and you have made us to be kings and priests to serve our God and Father. In taking this cup, we proclaim that you are king over all. We humbly submit to your reign, confessing you care for us, and acknowledging that all we have 
is given us through the all-sufficient blood of Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, you moved upon the waters of creation, taking that which was chaos and making it life. You overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary so that she who was barren could conceive. You anointed Jesus for his redemptive work, and you were poured out upon the church at Pentecost, and you are the down payment of our inheritance. Holy Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us now. Come in power, enlightening the eyes of our heart so that we might know the love and care of the Father for us, the hope of our calling, and the immeasurable power of God at work within us, His children. Empower us to live as obedient sons and daughters, to fulfill the call of God in our lives, to trust You in every area, every day. We ask all of this for the glory of the Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's people say, amen. Let's stand together. I want to encourage you to receive God's blessing as you go forth. And as this week you're wrestling and asking God to help you trust in those areas, Receive the blessing of God to empower you. May you be blessed by God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to whom be honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Go in the blessing of Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.